May I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. For those of you that have not been with us over the past many months, we are going verse by verse as we do through every text that we come to. And we have been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we find ourselves this morning in Matthew chapter 6, beginning actually in verse 9, and we will focus primarily this morning on verse 10. Follow along as I read verses 9 through 13, our Lord speaking here. And he says, pray then in this way, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Before we examine this text closely this morning, may I ask you to examine your own heart with respect to your prayer life. When you come before the Lord to pray, do you have any idea what you're doing, where you're going? Do you have any kind of an outline or anything in your mind or do you just kind of wing it? Do you tend to ramble? When you pray, and I'm not talking so much about public prayer, but you could look at that as well. Do you tend to use worn out cliches that you've used over and over again because you heard somebody else use them over and over again, who probably heard somebody else use them over and over again? Mindless, perhaps repetitions that you use kind of as filler, especially in public prayer. Because you're kind of embarrassed and you don't really know what to say. So you pull out those things that you're used to hearing other people say and you say them and you say in Jesus name, amen. And you take a deep breath. I remember when I was a young man and I think there's probably a few other people in this room that were in those prayer meetings with me. And some of the I shouldn't say a young man, I was a little boy. And there was one man in particular, whenever he prayed in prayer meetings, several of the little guys would start counting how many times he used the phrase, Oh, Lord, thank you, Oh, Lord, for this day, Oh, Lord, and Oh, Lord, we pray. And I mean, we would get up into the 30s and 40s. And I'm not trying to mock this dear gentleman, but the point is many times prayers are a bit mindless. Would you agree? When you pray alone, do you find your mind wandering? Do you find yourself beginning to yawn? A sure sign that your prayer is not heartfelt. Imagine someone talking to you and they're looking you in the eye and before you know it, they're yawning and they're looking somewhere else. And then suddenly they begin to babble about another subject and then they fall asleep. Many times I fear that's how the Lord must feel towards us when we come before him. Well, in the text that we have before us, the Lord Jesus gives us a divine model 
a basic framework for prayer. Not that we have to follow this precisely every time we pray, but certainly it gives us the grand theology upon which we can build the superstructure of our prayers and of our faith. It's the foundation, if you will, of prayers that would be pleasing to the Lord. And so this morning we find ourselves again at the feet of Jesus on the mountainside there coming out of the Sea of Galilee. Actually, it's a large hill where the Lord spoke to the multitudes in what we call his Sermon on the Mount. And as you know, those of you that have been with us, the Lord has been relentless in his exposure of religious pretense, of religious theatrics, of the Jewish people, especially the leaders. Last week, we looked at three aspects of prayer that he exposes for us. He tells us how not to pray and gives us the secondly, the attitude of prayer. And then thirdly, the model of prayer. And that's where we're at this morning. And again, may I remind you that he did not teach here a prayer. But rather how to pray a model, a pattern. And again, only the mind of God could comprehensively articulate all of the great theology that would be necessary in a prayer that's pleasing to the Father in a mere 70 words. Sometimes this is called the Lord's Prayer. It would be better called the Lord's pattern for prayer or model for prayer. But certainly it is a stunning contrast to the ritualistic, mechanical, ostentatious, repetitious prayers of the hypocrite. And may I remind you that this prayer or I should say this model is divided into two sections, each having three categories or petitions. The first section merely addresses God and his glory. That's where we need to begin with our prayers. That's verses nine and ten. And the petitions underneath that first section of God and his glory would be petitions regarding his name, his kingdom and his will. We've already looked at his name. We'll review that in a moment. This morning we will be looking much more at his kingdom and his will. And then the second section of this model would address man's need. So we go from God's glory to man's need in verses 11 through the first part of 13. Petitions regarding our daily bread, forgiveness and protection from temptation. And this, of course, would be the perfect balance of God's glory with our need as it should be reflected even in our prayers. So by way of review, we've seen that Jesus begins with our father. The disciples have asked him, and we've seen this in Luke 11, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he says, OK, begin with our father. And of course, as we learned last week, this is a reminder of our spiritual origin. We've been adopted as his sons. We are the children of the heavenly father. Therefore, we should bear resemblance of our father, even as we would in our physical characteristics of our earthly father. We've been made partakers of the divine nature of God. Second Peter one four. But not only has he adopted us as sons, he is also, as we learned last week in Colossians, qualified us to share in the portion of a lot in our inheritance as saints in light. And therefore, the Lord says we should also hallow his name, which means to set apart his name and glorify his name. And we learned again last week that the name of God is the sum of all of his attributes. All of his characteristics are encompassed in the concept of this name that we hallow. And all through scripture, we read that 
God acts for his name's sake. He acts according to his holy character as the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe. So therefore, all prayer should begin with a proper and precise recognition of the character of our God. And likewise, every breath that we take should be considered another a gift of of God's grace to give him glory for yet one more moment in our life. So when we hallow his name, we acknowledge his supreme holiness and we glorify his utter perfection and his love and his righteousness. This is the name of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He is not Allah. He is not some other God. Those are false gods. There is only one true and living God. It is the God of the Bible. And so this is where a saint's prayer must begin. It must be anchored in these glorious truths. This is the fountainhead of of prayer that truly flows from the hearts of the redeemed. So we echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 138 two, where we read, I will praise your name, the psalmist says. For your love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Now, if these things are foreign to you, you need to get to know your spiritual heavenly father. You need to know his titles and his attributes and all the metaphors. We rehearsed some of those last week. And dear friends, the richness of these glorious truths, when we think of God as our, our redeemer, Our rock, our fortress, our shelter, our shield, and all of these magnificent things. As you become more and more sensitive to these truths, when you come before Him as your heavenly Father, these things will be in the forefront of your mind and they will naturally flow out of a heart that is filled with praise because you understand precisely, as best you can, the character of the God that you love and you serve, the character of the God to whom you address. Now, we notice the second petition regarding God and his glory. In verse 10, the Lord goes on and he says, pray your kingdom come. Well, what is the kingdom? Well, there are a number of facets of facets to the kingdom of God. Let me try to go over them rather briefly, but hopefully enough that you will have a good basic understanding of them. The original language for the word kingdom really refers to a dominion, uh, a sovereignty. It's, it's the rule of a king. But it's not merely just a geographical region with boundaries. And certainly all of the universe is the dominion of God. We would understand that. The almighty sovereign rule, rules over all things. But this is not the kingdom for which we pray. The kingdom of God, dear friends, is a spiritual kingdom in which he reigns in the hearts of those whom he has chosen by his grace. A reign that will ultimately be experienced physically by his subjects when we see him face to face and when he reigns upon the earth during the millennial age. At the second coming of Christ, he will establish an earthly kingdom for a thousand years. And we pray For all of these aspects of the kingdom to come, we pray somewhat like this. King Jesus, convert sinners to yourself that they might also become your glorious subjects. And Lord Jesus, may they be testimonies to your mercy and to your grace, to the power of your glory. And even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly as you have promised that your reign upon the earth might be completed that you might be glorified among all of the nations and therefore also satisfy the longings of, of our hearts. 
longings that you have placed within our hearts to see you face to face. Now, technically, the the kingdom of God encompasses something past, present and future. Kingdom past, we read about the spiritual kingdom. For example, in Luke 13, we read about how that uh, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets were in the kingdom. And it's fascinating. You might even remember that Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world in John 18. And there's also, therefore, this kingdom present. Jesus said in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So it's something also in the present as well as the past. Remember, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as it is sometimes called, is at the very heart of the gospel. And repentance is the only way to enter the kingdom. You might remember that John the Baptist cried out, repent for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so this was at the very core, even of all of Jesus's message. He came, Luke 4 says, to preach the kingdom of God. But he also came unto his own and his own received him not. They rejected their king. They crucified him. But he promised to come back again, right? As king of kings and lord of lords to establish an earthly kingdom and eventually an eternal heavenly kingdom. So we have also a kingdom future. And of course, this would be the consummation of redemptive history. That great millennial kingdom when Jesus Christ is exalted on the earth as he is in heaven now. And this is the blessed hope of the saints throughout redemptive history. The glorious second coming of Christ. When the lamb returns as the lion. Even though he came in humility the first time, he will come again his second time in glory. And many Gentiles from every nation will be redeemed, the Bible tells us. It will be a time of judgment, a time of resurrection. We read that all of Israel will be saved and grafted back into the root of blessing from which it has been temporarily removed. And Israel's promised kingdom will finally be realized. The Bible tells us that we will rule and we will reign with King Jesus upon a renovated earth for a thousand years. At the end of which he will recreate the heavens and the earth and we will have a new heaven and a new earth and we will enter into that eternal state of heaven. That time when, as the apostle Paul tells us in first Corinthians 15, 28, when all things are subjected to him. Then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. But folks, remember, prior to his heavenly reign, where he will be eternally exalted in the fullness of of Trinitarian glory, there will be an earthly kingdom in which the spiritual realities will be realized physically. The prophet spoke about this. Throughout scripture, of course, this is a magnificent promise of this thousand year reign described six times in Revelation 20 alone. And frequently it's promised in the Old Testament by the prophets. You read about it in 2 Samuel 7. You'll read about it in Jeremiah 30 and 33. You'll read about it in Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7. Psalm 2, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 24. You'll read about it in Hosea 3 and Joel 3 and Amos 9 and Micah 4, Zephaniah 3, Zechariah 14. You'll even read about it in Matthew 24 as the Lord himself speaks about this time. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, we are given a glimpse of the coronation of King Jesus as God the Father places the crown upon his head 
And we read there Daniel saying, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. Dear friends, this is the kingdom for which we pray. Lord, bring your kingdom in. And ultimately it will be a time when Messiah will take back his rightful authority from the current ruler of this age. Satan himself, the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, the ruler of this world, according to John 12, 31. Indeed, presently, 1 John 5, 19 tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, dear friends, may I ask you, are these incomprehensible promises energizing your prayer life? Do you long to see the reign of Christ? In the hearts of men and women, do you long to see your despised Savior high and lifted up upon the earth? Do you find yourself crying out from within, oh, Lord, abolish all the rule of wickedness upon the earth that you might receive the preeminence in all things? This is what it means to pray for the kingdom to come. Are you like Simeon in Luke 2? Where we read that he was looking for the consolation of Israel, the Menachem, the Messiah comforter. Simeon, like all of the Jews, had hope in the Abrahamic covenant where they were promised blessing, a Messiah, a promised land that had never been fully realized. They also had hope in the Davidic covenant where they were promised a king to rule over the world. They were also promised in a new covenant Those great promises of forgiveness and cleansing and a new heart and the implanting of the Holy Spirit. And now, of course, we can look back and rejoice that the king has arrived. We can look back and see that giving us a portion of the kingdom. But he has also departed and he's told us that he's going to return. Thus, King Jesus himself teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come. Now, this is very important and I want you to hear this. Because of the grammar of this text We see, and if you want it technically, it is an aorist active imperative. And it denotes simply this, that this kingdom that is going to come, for which the Lord is asking us to pray, will be something that is swift, that is spontaneous, that that is sudden, something that will burst upon the the scene. It's an instantaneous coming. And of course, this would... Speak to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he explodes upon the earth. That's important for you to also understand that the kingdom for which we pray is not created by man. You do not see that in the word of God. It's foolish to think that somehow the kingdom will be inaugurated through politics. That somehow we'll vote in enough Christians, enough Republicans, that eventually we can Christianize America. And certainly... It's not to say that the church is going to somehow create an earthly utopia. You just don't see that in Scripture. We are already seeing the dangerous and tragic results of trying to create a Christian America. What we're seeing is the creation of a superficial Christianity anchored not in the gospel of Christ, but in the gospel of man. The gospel of Christ is one of self-denial. 
The gospel of man is one of self-fulfillment. The gospel that you hear today is come to Jesus as your blesser and he will make you healthy, wealthy and wise rather than come to Jesus as your savior. Because your sin speaks against you according to the holiness of God. Unfortunately, most evangelism today is merely emotional manipulation. There's no asking a person to count the cost to take up a cross no real transformation that bears the fruits of repentance. In fact, many professing Christians today resent the lordship of Christ in their lives, a certain proof that they are not born again. For Jesus himself said, if any man wants to, wants to come after me, let him what? Let him deny himself. It's the gospel of self-denial, not self-fulfillment. Let him take up a cross daily. Let him follow me. We see the misguided moral America movement here in our in our country. It's sad. I've watched, as I'm sure you have, many well-meaning, but I believe misguided Christians protesting the removal of the Ten Commandments in Alabama from the courthouse, demanding that it be returned. And it's so sad. The people who ultimately energize the removal of this are people that are unbelievers. <laughs> Again, they're spiritually dead. They, they have no capacity to even understand the glories of God. They have no respect for his word. They're at enmity with God. They hate God, the Bible says. They despise his, they despise his word. And so you don't take these people and force them to somehow believe the Ten Commandments. You see, friends, the, the answer to these things is not something political. It's not let's vote for more Christians. The answer is Christ and him crucified. It is the gospel that needs to be preached. For it's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, not Christian politics. This was never the Lord's agenda. Our nation affirms today a distinctively anti-Christian agenda. Most politicians and leaders of our country have a seething resentment for the truth of Scripture. But as for believers... Because of the transformation that God and his grace has done in our heart, we can look at the law. We can look at his word. As the scripture says, these things are not burdensome to us. In fact, the psalmist has said in Psalm 119.54, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Can you imagine people in our culture writing songs about the IRS code or about any law of our land? Instead, they have lyrics that they write about violating God's law. But dear friends, think about it. We sing about the law of God. Why do we do that? Because the gospel has transformed our hearts. This is not true with the rest of our culture. And so you can't grab a hold of them politically and grab them by the scruff of the neck and say, open wide and have a little Jesus. All you will do is produce resentment in their heart. Our nation today teaches its children the irrational and unscientific theory of evolution, that we are descended from apes. We teach people today that all gods are the same. We teach people today that it's okay to kill unborn infants. We have a country that believes that homosexuality should be considered morally acceptable, and on and on it goes. So should it, why should it surprise you that people don't want the Ten Commandments? Certainly they're not going to sing about it. Well, how should we respond as, as Christians? Should we be militant? Should we be more politically active? Should we just be passive and sit back? No, not at all. 
What we need to do is pray for the kingdom to come and to get serious about the Great Commission. You see, our role is evangelism. These folks have no capacity to act righteously. They're slaves to to their lusts and to their sins, and they need Christ. Furthermore, if people die without Christ, may I ask you, what difference does it make what they believe about homosexuality? What difference does it make what they believe about abortion or saving the environment or pornography or gun control or any of those things? Dear friends, when the church gets preoccupied with changing society, it will inevitably lose its passion for evangelism. And then we will end up becoming hostile toward a society that hates us. When we become combative, we tend to lose our compassion. And yet, Paul tells, tells us in Titus 3, we're to be subject, we are to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Why? He goes on to say, for we also were once foolish ourselves. Disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another until he saved us. John Seal, an author that warns us about a Christian America. And here's what he says. A politicized faith not only blurs our priorities, but weakens our loyalties. Our primary citizenship is not on earth, but in heaven. Though few evangelicals would deny this truth in theory, the language of our spiritual citizenship gets frequently wrapped in the red, white, and blue. Rather than acting as resident aliens of a heavenly kingdom, too often we sound like and act like resident apologists for a, quote, Christian America. Unless we reject the false reliance on the illusion of a Christian America, evangelicalism will continue to distort the gospel and thwart a genuine biblical identity. American evangelicalism is now covered by layers and layers of historically shaped attitudes that obscure our original biblical core, end quote. This is so true. You ask people today, what's a Christian? And you will go through layers and layers and layers of confusion and bad theology and many times outright heresy. Bottom line, dear friends, we do nothing to advance God's kingdom by trying to change our culture. The best we can do with that is retard the metastasizing corruption of a human society, of our human society, until until the king suddenly bursts upon the scene. But we don't bring in the kingdom. He does. And to this end, we pray. So we would pray, therefore, for our father. And in with all of his glorious attributes, and we pray for this present limited kingdom to be expanded by the salvation of souls and ultimately the earthly kingdom to explode upon the scene and ultimately merge into the eternal kingdom of which there will be no end. And beloved, we must also live consistently with what we pray for and live in such a way as to make our message believable to people. So therefore, we should pray for God to reign within our hearts, pray that he will subdue the desires of our flesh Pray that he will help us destroy the idols of our hearts and remove all of the obstinacy that would be within our hearts and rule every affection of our heart. And so Jesus teaches us first to acknowledge the fatherhood of God 
and a reverence for him and praise him for his attributes encompassed in his name. And then to express our passion to see every aspect of the kingdom brought to bear to the praise of his glory. But notice something also at the end of verse 10. He goes on and he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what is God's will? Well, we could be here a long time explaining that. But let me give you three very distinct theological components of this. And forgive me for being a bit technical, but I fear that unless I do, sometimes we, we, we lose the, the precision that is necessary to understand these truths. And we end up with theological ebonics, as I call it, and others have called it. And, and therefore, we really don't grasp the richness of what God would have us to know. Three distinct components of God's will. First of all, there is the will of sovereign purpose. This would be his decreed will. In Greek, it would be his thalo will. He has decreed a sovereign plan in eternity past that controls all history. And it encompasses all of the universe, heaven, earth, hell, all of those things. Ephesians 1.11 says that he works all things after the counsel of his will. This is his sovereign purpose will. He even allows Satan to be the God of this world, the prince in the power of the air. As Luther said, Satan is God's ape. In Isaiah 14, verse 24, we read, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned it, so it will stand. And you see, our hope, even in fulfilled prophecy, requires that God be sovereignly in charge of all things. And so God has a sovereign decreed will, his purpose. This would include, of course, the stability of the universe, the seasons, the boundaries of the nations, the rise and fall of rulers. It would include the duration of a man's life, how a man might even die, the manner of his death. I remember in Genesis 5, when Joseph's brothers came before him, he said, uh, that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. See, God's in charge of those things. In Acts 4, 27, we, re- we read that God even predetermined according to his own purposes. It even says that he anointed Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews to persecute Jesus. This didn't catch God by surprise. He had ordained these things to happen because he has a sovereign decreed will that has a purpose. There is secondly a will of God's desire. This is his bulimai will in the Greek. It falls within the the circle of his sovereign decreed will. And it never violates it. It's always consistent with his decreed will. But this will, this will of desire is much more specific. And dear friends, it is often unfulfilled. At least for now. We know, for example, that he came to seek and to save lost sinners. Yet even after all of the astounding miracles in his three-year ministry where disease was basically banished in Palestine, there were only about a thousand converts. In his will of desire, his attitude is involved here. For example, in 1 Timothy 2.4, it says that he desires all men to be saved. But dear friends, he has not decreed that. It says, in fact, in Matthew 22.14, that many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus, for example, longed to see men repent, but very few did. For example, in Acts 1, there were only about 120 that met in the upper room after our Lord had risen. Jesus desired for Jerusalem to be saved, but they crucified him. 
We read in Luke 13, 34, Jesus saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wanted, I desired to gather you, you, you as my children, gather you together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. So many things that God desires remain unfulfilled. Then there's also the will of God's command where we read all through Scripture that the Father has told His children how we should conduct ourselves for His glory and for our good. So, what does it mean, Thy will be done, done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, friends, it simply means this. We are asking that His will become our will. We're basically saying, Lord, help us to have the mind of Christ. Help us to love what You love and hate what You hate. Lord, help us to learn to pursue what you pursue with all of our hearts, namely the will of the Father, even as you pursued the will of the Father. And as we are praying this, we pray that his will will prevail over the entire earth as it does in heaven. Dear friends, may I ask you, how does his will prevail in heaven? Well, it does so without hesitation. It does so without question. It does so willfully and joyfully and fervently and completely. How do we know? Well, Psalm 103 verse 20 tells us where David sings about the angels performing God's will. It says, bless the Lord, you, his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Excuse me, could I get somebody to turn on the air conditioning? Could I do that, please? Somebody, Brian, maybe. In Isaiah chapter 6, and also in Ezekiel 1, we read about the magnificent, glorious cherubim that hover around the throne of God. Now, come back with me. Listen, this is so incredible. As you read about the cherubim, these glorious angels that hover around the throne of God, you'll see that their eyes, as you read it, are riveted upon the Almighty, ever vigilant to do His bidding. And in Ezekiel, we read that that when when God dispatches them, that the very power of their holy service makes a noise that is incredible. Ezekiel tells us that it is the noise of many waters. In other words, it's like a giant uh, waterfall. And it's like the voice of the almighty. It's like a tumult of the noise of an army. And then he goes on and says, and when when the wings were stopped, in other words, when their service was complete, The text says that they stood utterly still before their creator. Eyes again riveted upon him, waiting to do his bidding. Oh, child of God, would that our that our vigilance and in in service and in worship on earth be as the cherubim in heaven. This, dear friend, is the heart of Jesus model for prayer. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. John MacArthur says, and I quote, to be dedicated to God's will is, by definition, to be opposed to Satan's. To rebel against the worldly idea that sin is normal and inevitable and should therefore be acquiesced to, or at least tolerated. It is to rebel against the world's system of ungodliness, the dishonoring and rejecting of Christ, and also the disobedience of believers, end quote. Friends, what a tragedy when prayers flow from the poisoned fountain of selfishness where we pray, Lord, my will be done rather than thy will be done. The divine model that we read here strikes a death blow to self-will and to, to rebellion and to pride. 
It absolutely annihilates this blasphemous concept of name it and claim it and blab it and grab it. Again, I ask you, is this the passion of your prayer life? Is this what flows from your heart? Do you desire more than anything else to do the will of God? And of course, His will is first for you to be saved, to accept His gift of mercy, to make Him the Lord of your life, to trust Him and obey Him and submit to Him and walk with Him and to love Him and commune with Him. Our dear old brother Spurgeon of over 150 years ago says this, and I quote, Oh, that will may cost us dear. Yet let it never cross our wills. Let our minds be wholly subjugated to the mind of God. That will may bring us bereavement, sickness and loss. But let us learn to say it is the Lord. Let him do what he seemeth good. We should not only yield to the divine will, but acquiesce in it so as to rejoice in the tribulation which it ordains. This is high attainment. But we set ourselves to reach it. He that taught us this prayer used it himself in the most unrestricted sense. When the bloody sweat stood on his face and all the fear and trembling of a man in anguish were upon him, he did not dispute the decree of the Father, but bowed his head and cried, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. He goes on to say, Can thy will, O God, be done in earth as it is in heaven? It can be, and it must be, for a prayer wrought in the soul by the Holy Spirit is ever the shadow of a coming blessing. And he that taught us to pray after this manner did not mock us with vain words. Oh, dear child of God, learn to pray based on your understanding and your love for a father that drew you to himself in his great mercy. Understand the glory of His name and all that that entails in your life. And plead with Him that His kingdom might come in the hearts of men, that He might reign supreme upon in, in, in your heart and ultimately, ultimately upon the earth, that He might be high and lifted up and exalted and pray for His will to be done in heaven as, or on earth as it is in heaven. May I leave you with this great hope. The universe is yours, O Lord. You alone can reign. By the power of your word, everything is sustained. Governed by your sovereign grace, we joyfully proclaim. Adopted sons, behold your face, yet Sabaoth your name. O Lord, triumphant. We persist. May thy kingdom come. Cast the dragon from our midst. Reclaim your earthly throne. Stir our souls for heaven's sweet. We long to be at home. And may our prayers oft repeat. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Let's pray together. Father, so often your truths are so clear to us, and yet somehow the gravity of them just kind of slides off as we leave a service. Lord, I pray that this would not be the case today. 
Lord, impress upon our hearts in a new and powerful way the importance of prayer, of communing with you, but doing so based on precise, rich and profound theology. Lord, that you might be glorified when we come into your presence and that we might not be at a loss for words, save for your presence itself. And Lord, I would submit to you this morning that we cry out to you for those to come to a saving knowledge of yourself. And so, Lord, would you please, in your great mercy, bring overwhelming conviction to those that might be within the sound of my voice that know you not as Savior. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they experience the miracle of the new birth as they cast their burden of sin at the foot of the cross. Lord, thank you for your glorious truths. May they find lodging in our heart and bear much fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.